What is good, everyone? Welcome to the Exhaust Notes podcast, where it is our goal to share our passion for cars, motorsports, and more specifically on this episode, everyone's new favorite drama series, Formula One. We want to help fans better understand the nuances of the sport and give you a place to ask questions and get insights from three fans with very different experience levels and perspectives. Before we get into today's episode, give us a follow on all of your favorite social platforms at Exhaust Notes FM. And check out all of our previous episodes at www.exhaustnotes.fm. Welcome to the Exhaust Notes Podcast. What is good, everyone? Welcome to the Exhaust Notes Podcast. My name is Nick Ingvall. I'm with my guys, Todd Yates, Rohit Malhotra. We are ready to talk F1, some movies. But first, how are you guys doing? Doing well, Nick. You know, it's... Sunday night, the lights are about to be go out or about to go out or on, depending on where you are in the world. But couldn't think of something better to do on this Sunday night than talk to you guys about this thing that we all kind of like. <laughs> yeah, as a wise man once said, Robin's racing and on the edge, you're out of control. You guys know what movie that's from? I don't. No, enlighten us, because this is as excellent of a precursor as we're going to get, Mr. Yates. It's not a Formula One movie, but it's one of my favorite movies ever. It's Days of Thunder. Ah, yes. And since we're going to be talking movies tonight, I thought that was a good intro. Totally. No, I think that is definitely a part of the Great American Race Car trilogy between that, uh, Ricky Bobby, and of course, some movie that we will probably be talking a lot about, but not in serious tones, the Formula One-esque, because I don't know if they actually got the licenseship of Driven with one Burt Reynolds, uh, who's playing, what will we call it, a broad characterization of Frank Williams? Something like that. <laughs> kind of, yeah. No, what a goofy movie for a goofy day. But anyway, like, I think I'm really excited about this because I think when Nick first brought up the topic and we had topic A or topic B, we all kind of gravitated towards topic B, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is movies. And we all have our favorites and we look forward to sharing that with everybody because we're starting to realize now that as people get hooked to the drug that is Formula One, we want to freebase some other things as well that relate to the genre, but aren't necessarily the direct source. Definitely. That's a good way to put it. I think too, it's a, it's a, uh, much like drive to survive is a, it's kind of a, a great entry point to the sport. There's been some, there's been some entertaining movies throughout the years that, that can kind of give people the, the dramatized idea of what the sport can be. And it's at its, uh, best slash worst moments, I guess. Yeah, I think Netflix needs to start paying us because we mentioned <laughs> Drive to Survive probably three to four times each episode uh, in, for good reason. I think it's it's brought a lot of new people into the sport, but uh, we should uh, reach out for sponsorship or just call it DTS or something so they <laughs> yeah. can't. Or you could just kind of send us the season early. I wouldn't mind getting the newest season of Drive to Survive early so we could do a pre- during and post show uh, breakdown of what's going to be a really interesting season because I think the narrative that they take in this upcoming season around how they handle the topic that we won't talk about because it's so kind of fresh for a lot of us is going to let me know whether they're leaning into the sports side or the entertainment side going forward from an F1 perspective. I'll give you yeah. one guess. <laughs> Which way it's going to go. I feel like, uh, I feel like if, if, if I could, 
give you an analogy of what Drive to Survive is as a as somebody who if you've never watched it before, right? It's like it's like, you know, the level of dramatization is like the equivalent of when your cat walks past something like a mirror and startles itself so much that it does black backflips in the air and eventually lands on its feet and continues walking. But that's kind of what drive to survive is, right? It's just like so over the top, but also like it's, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah. To your point, like the, some of it's, really kind of farcical like they made a beef between lando and carlos um the last their last year together at mclaren i guess that was two years ago now um which is completely false they were like the best of friends like we talked about how yuki sonoda and pierre gasly are like just like the idiot stepbrother kind of vibe they are the exact same thing like they cup check each other while one of them's doing an interview and have to be serious on camera. But then there's the good dramatization, like when uh, Roman Grosjean had his wreck and you, you you mentioned it on a previous episode, like that was like two minutes of terror in real time, but they got every little detail and dragged it out to 15 minutes, but it was all just super interesting. I got to say too, uh, after we recorded that episode, I ended up, having dinner with my folks and they mentioned how like crazy that event was not, you know, they didn't watch originally. They're not like formula one fans, but they're actually both looking forward to watching some races this year because they've been watching drive to survive, which to me, that's the perfect example of like, you know, it's, it's just beneficial to everyone for something like this to exist, to bring new people in because you'll eventually get to the point where you find something about the sport that you absolutely love. And that becomes your obsession point. And you won't even really remember drive to survive 20 years from now. You'll just be like, Oh, you know what? That one time that Lando did this with, with Danny Rick. And you know, that's the moment that stands out, you know, down the road for you. So, um, but before we get into the movies, the documentaries that we want to talk about today, uh, Todd had, had a a good call. I think we got to, I think we got to talk about, the early unveiling of the Haas Formula One car, which I have to say just that my perception of it was, uh, you know, it was kind of like, it was kind of like the, the people that comment first on YouTube videos. That's what I feel like Haas did. They were just like, you know what? First. It was not <laughs> planned at all. It was just like, first. Here it is. <laughs> If you're the first one in the party, you're automatically the smartest, prettiest, funniest, handsomest, yeah. whatever you want to be, because you're the first one. So right now they have the best livery coming into the season. I'm sure that will change, though. <laughs> I think it was really interesting. The, the reason I wanted to talk uh, talk about it is because, and we'll probably do an episode later of like ranking all of the liveries as we see them. But um, it was really interesting to me to see a current livery on the new car because as we talked about many a time so far the f1's entering a new era of regulation and they've done some pretty massive changes simplifying things they're going to be running ground effects and um and to see a, a real livery on 
the car was really cool because they didn't look i don't know if you guys paid attention when they uh f1 brought out their own demo car based on the new regulations and they had all the drivers yeah. stand around it and take pictures and stuff and holy god that thing was a mess like it was just like it just looked like a hammerhead shark was getting mounted by <laughs> well I'll just i'll stop that analogy no, now and, but and if you don't mind i'd like you to keep going because you had me a mounted hammerhead shark uh yeah a hammerhead shark was getting mounted by a platypus and like doing the nasty it was it was really bad and then covered both of them in glitter um but yeah it was real bad but to see Haas's livery which i'll comment on us in a second uh on a real car gave me a lot higher hopes for you know, F1 cars still looking cool. Yeah, I would agree with that. No, I was just going to say glitter is nature's version of pixie dust. I'm pretty convinced of that. So anytime you can have more glitter on anything, I'm always a plus for. So it was interesting because I'm looking at the livery schedule because this, like any good business, is calendarized so much that you always have something to look forward to next. So like Todd had mentioned, we've got Haas. And then in the next week alone, we will have Red Bull on the 9th, Aston Martin on the 10th, and McLaren on the 11th. So when we record next week, those are some heavy hitters that are known for their uh, liveries. So I can't wait to see what everybody has. But yeah, Haas definitely out the gate. Maybe the only podium they win this year, but I will be not as persnickety when I say that. Yeah. Who's going to who's gonna guess what Red Bull's livery is? The exact same thing. You bite your tongue. <laughs> bite your tongue. It's not. There's a different shade of navy, and there's a different shade of red this year. We'll have to talk about it on on another episode. But the 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 Jap the Japanese uh, Grand Prix Red Bull that didn't happen that happened later was incredible. Like I would love to see them go with something like that as like a change, but I know that's not going to happen. That livery was amazing. One of the best I've ever seen. But they, it was a shame they had to run it at the Zandvoort race in the Netherlands yeah. and not in Japan. So hot takes on on the Haas livery. We 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 know what Todd feels how Todd feels a... about the shape of the car. Yeah, but... let, let's let's keep Todd for the last because I feel he is senior <laughs> liver, livery correspondent okay. on this. I liked it. I'd mentioned to both of you. It was nice seeing the black again after the. Russianization of last year's livery because if you look at Haas's livery history, you just see black, white, and gray, black, white, and gray, black, white, and gray, red, white, and blue. What's this? What, what is this? And now we're almost regressing to the mean in a sense. That being said, I like it. I think the black is a nice touch to the previous era, the Dunder Mifflin era, but we are still very much in the succession era. So that's all I will say about that. Nick, how yeah, about you? I, I don't like it. I don't hate it i just feel like i hope people don't get confused that this red white and blue is actually russia not the u.s you know put some damn stars and stripes on the thing if you want to make if they're supposed to be the american team with a soviet sponsor whatever you want to call it you know uh be, be a little better about combining the red, white, and blue. Make one side of the car Russia, make the other side America. Or you can do Let's this. Cool. Build bridges. You can make a sickle entirely out of stars. And there you go. Russia and America, <laughs> right then and there. <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, just 
echoes Nick's sentiment there. It's kind of meh. It's not bad. It's better than last year's, which was just the Russian flag and a giant middle finger to the FIA and the Russian doping ban. Um, it's it's just kind of blah. It's a little better than last year's, but like we mentioned in the pre-show, uh, I still think that the rich energy livery they had is still their best one, even though that was the beginning of the clown clown show operations that they have over at Haas. I, I have to agree with Rowe, though. I, feel that, that, I was going to say, I have to that? agree with you. The black, especially with the black wheels, looks looks much better than, than last year's. Now, now, I will always have a special moment in my heart because if we have a drive to survive counter, this will be mention number five. Just that whole story arc was hilarious. And my man looked like he was the rejected Duck Dynasty brother. And I was like, this can't be well. And I was really hoping they would keep the black and gold because I thought it was an inspired touch. And it's something we're really conditioned to as American sports fans because those con- colors are very synonymous with one another. But it was nice seeing that on a Formula One thing. And I think. Black for me is one of those colors that really pops regardless how it's utilized in that Formula One car design. But yeah, this we'll call this an amuse-bouche. It's 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 a start. We'll build off of this. And that's what I think Haas is hoping to do this year as well. Last thing I'll say about Haas is uh, William Story, the aforementioned uh, Duck Dynasty brother. Uh, he's a great Twitter follow. He's legally insane. And some he somehow he has his own Twitter, so... I feel like someone's mental aptitude isn't necessarily a barrier of entry when it comes to obtaining a Twitter license. But at the same time, it's the cherry on top that it's like, you know what? I was unsure if you were a little well or unwell. But now that I see after you have quoted this obscure text that may or may not have Nazi-ish tendencies, and I'm not saying that's what happened. But shout out to Joe Rogan, because you can apparently get away with a lot and still have 100 million people sponsoring you. So we hope to get to that level, except without the casual racism here at Exhaust Notes. Well said. Well said. All right, let's get into these. Let's get into these movies and documentaries. And I think I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this to you, Rohit, because you said you just you just watched Senna again uh, this weekend. So start us off. Tell us a little bit about Senna. Sure. So Senna is a lot of people's first foray into Formula One in the sense that he was that transcendent driver that when he's driving, it didn't matter what car he had. He would just always race to the top. And there was a certain blood guts and big racer energy about him where if you had to build the characteristics of a race car driver after watching this movie, you kind of think, oh, yeah, I'm essentially doing a sketch of Ayrton Senna. Ayrton Senna was from Brazil. I believe he came from an upper mid-class family. And the movie starts off with him entering Europe for the very first time to start or continue his karting journey. And then we fast forward to, I believe, his first year where he was on a team that I didn't even know existed other than in the constructs of this movie. And that was called Tolman. And you focus on this one race that he essentially has a less than average car, but he pushes it to the absolute limit. And he makes his way, I believe he started off maybe in 14th and he makes it all the way to the second part. But similar to another movie we'll touch on later, there are some weather conditions that kind of cause this race to finish a little bit early. And it's tragedy because he is about to overtake arguably the biggest antagonist of his career and the antagonist of this movie in Alan Prost, aka the professor. And this whole documentary is just a look in his look at his 
tragically short and apologies if that constructs as a spoiler it's not my intent but his tragically short but very impressive career so i will stop right there so that way i can kind of get both of your takes on it and then as we're chatting we can probably discuss some of our favorite parts in this movie because this is truly one of those movies that came out in 2010 and you as a viewer may not realize how this movie had shaped the era of uh, documentaries after the fact because there's just something about it. We're so used to documentaries having this format of narrative, picture, picture, interview to somebody that was there. But this movie, the best way I can explain it, it's told in present tense over the course of the movie. Every documentary we ever see has this concept of people telling us what happened after the fact, whether it's a year, two years, a decade. This movie is very much grounded in its present, and we're never cutting to the old images of people regaling what happened. The the thing about this movie documentary, I guess, for me, was it, it kind of came out at a time where... I don't want to say my interest was waning from formula one, but more that my, just my, my commitment to the sport was a little bit, uh, less than, than it typically was, I guess. Um, and Senna was a driver that like, kind of, I, you know, he was connected to the Hondas growing up. So for me, he was like, one of the earlier formula one drivers that I, you know, paid attention to when I wasn't really young or wasn't really old enough to even understand, you know, much about the sport. Right. It was just like the name stuck, the, the, the connection to me and the family always having Hondas as a, as a kid. And like, even growing up, you know, it, it just, it's also just a really emotionally well done documentary. It is like, you know, we've, we've talked about drive to survive and the dramatization of it. And I think that, I think that, you know, the passion from, from Senna comes across in, in this documentary so well that even if you didn't watch formula one and you just watched this film, you would probably be emotionally invested in this man, you know, within, you know, a third or a halfway through the film. And I think that is kind of, representative of 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 him as a as a driver as as him as a you know public figure in a sense right and then you also get to see beyond the circle of formula one how much he meant to his country to the other drivers the the you know kind of like racing as a whole because he is really like you know he's like loved and hated too like at that time right like after the fact you know, everybody loves, you know, the story and him as like the greatest driver of all time for some people. But I think that you get to see his, you know, the, the ups and downs of his personality and the battles with Prost and, you know, kind of the, the same, it's, it's very representative of right now. Right. I mean, this, this is probably the best documentary for you to watch as a newcomer to formula one, because you get to see when two of the greatest drivers of all time go head to head and how the FIA and the rest of racing reacts, you know, poorly, properly, however you want to look at it, but you get to see all the dynamics that exist in what racing is in this documentary. And, you know, I think, you know, it's hard for me to separate my own, 
you know, pandemonium for him, I guess. Um, so I would say like, this is probably one of the, if, if we were doing this list in a ranked order, which I don't think we plan to in any way, but like this would definitely be near the top for me just because I, you know, I thought it was just really well done. I'm a big fan of, of Senna and have kind of always just been a fan. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I think the, the you mentioned he's the greatest driver of all all time to some people. Uh, that's me. I'm some people. Yeah. Um, I, I mentioned kind of when we got uh, when we did one of the first episodes about how we got into Formula One and our histories growing up and stuff. And I mentioned on that <clears throat> um, that podcast that around the time that I got into racing in general was around it was either 92 or 94. Um, and I mentioned that Alan's or junior link to it or whatever, but I also started my first experience of watching formula one was uh, around that time. And, um, and no, no worries on the spoilers row hit because I'm about to spoil it big time. Uh, I remember he, it, you mentioned it too, Nick, that he was like a transcendent figure and I didn't follow a bunch of traditional sports really when I was growing up and for the world to know who this person was and when his accident happened. And I remember getting up at like three o'clock in the morning to watch his funeral because it was broadcast globally. Um, it, He was... He was like a, you know a, a Michael Jordan, a Wayne Gretzky. He was he was that kind of figure uh, at that time. And the, back to documentary, like it it shows the perfect viewing of like the juxtaposition that is racing drivers and him especially because he, he's and we'll talk about this in a, in a later movie that we're going to mention tonight. But it shows him talking about the safety and the risks that he has to take and the, um, you know, him, him putting his life on the line. And at the same time, he'll dive bomb his arch rival, Alan Prost, uh, at the same, like into a corner going a hundred miles an hour. So it just shows how passionate they were, how kind of kooky racing drivers are, but it really gets digs into the deep details of him as a person and, there's another movie that we left off this list tonight, but Nick, you mentioned it's near the top for you. I would say this is this is a one A one B situation. Um, I would put this as number one for me, or you know, one of those one A one Bs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things that I remember, and then this is kind of a loaded statement because Bill Simmons is a very polarizing person, but he had this article once on a book called the game written by Montreal Canadians goaltender Ken Dryden. And he's talking about what's the greatest sports book that was ever written. And he said, you know, I'm a basketball guy. I think of breaks of game. I think of all these other titles, but then if I truly measure the distance in terms of that book, the game followed by any other hockey book, it's no comparison. That's the greatest sports book of all time, just because of how much it laps the competition. And both of you mentioned some things that I'll just quickly touch on. Uh, to remember Ayrton Senna, the best way I can describe it, and I'm not even a baseball guy, so maybe I'll lean to that guy in the middle, Nick Engvall, to see if this is an apt comparison. But the humanitarian work that showcases what Senna did for that country at that point in time, because there was a very turbulent 
period in Brazil's history. And there's a nice man on the street, or it might have even been a woman on the street saying, you know, Brazil's going through some things, as the kids say. And right now, he is the one thing that makes me proud to be Brazilian because he doesn't hide from the fact that he is Brazilian. And to Todd's point, to quote yet another guardian angel, if you will, a man's got to have a code. Shout out to Omar Little from The Wire. And Ayrton Senna is very much that because there's a famous quote that's associated with him that roughly is, if the gap doesn't exist, I'm not a driver any, a racing car driver anymore. So that is all you need to know about Ayrton Senna's racing philosophy. And you compare and contrast that with Alan Prost, who was nicknamed the professor because he always knew what he had to do in terms of getting the result that he needed. So there's a famous analogy of if he needed to get fifth, in a race to win the championship, he would not go for first, he would not go for second, he would not go for third, he would not go for fourth. He would stay at fifth and make sure he got fifth. And some people may view that as cowardly. Other people may think that's the smartest way to go on the track. But at the same time, it's definitely an attitude. And you could kind of see the bristling of philosophies and ideologies between these two guys, because neither one of them is necessarily right or neither one of them is necessarily wrong. It's just a way to get the job done. And one other thing I will say about that documentary is the best documentaries tend to give you a snapshot of what life was like in that moment. And I was very impressed with a couple different factors of this movie. One was the drama around the FIA. So as the movie goes into, Alan Prost's probably biggest backer was the head of the FIA at that point, a man by the name of John Michael. I think his last name started with a B. So we'll just call him John Michael B. And you can kind of see how chummy is with Prost. And that really affected some of the legislative decisions that were made. And there's a very famous race where they both crash into each other. And half the drama is how are they going to come out of this race with the fact that there's a crash there? So there's that component of it. There's also the very harrowing footage that ultimately is the last quarter of the movie where we talk about Imola, which was the racetrack where Senna lost his life. And you just start seeing these, I don't even want to call them breadcrumbs because of the fact that they led to other people's deaths. And that's too trivial of a term. But at the same time, you are literally watching a man go and question every belief he has ever had about this thing that has not only brought him very much the success he has in life, but at the same time, a religious man that wants to do right by his God. And he feels that do I need to race? Do I not need to race? And ultimately, he decides I need to race on this weekend. And ultimately, that's why he's no longer here with us. So what do you guys think? Any other snapshots from the movie that you guys just want to highlight? Because I, I'm very apprehensive because I don't want to give a lot away. Because if you don't know the story, you probably have the best experience coming to you. But you do need to understand context behind some of these screenshots and vignettes that we're kind of providing you as a listener. Yeah, I think. I think the uh, other thing that I alluded to but didn't like specifically point out or say is that all of those kind of relationships between the drivers and the FIA and the governing, you know, authority, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that again with with Max and Lewis, which I think that that's something that to me is if you need to have a little bit of extra push to go watch a film about formula one right now that would be it right this is the one to, this is the one to start with if you're if you're new to this especially but even if you're a fan i think this is something that you'll probably even see things watching it a, a second or a third time through that you just didn't realize and um but i think too like it 
we should point out that, you know, I think IMDb has a 8.5 out of 10 rating on this, which, you know, there's not too many sports films that reach that level of sports documentaries specifically that reach that level of, of kind of, you know, mass popularity, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, to Todd's point, like, you know, he's more than a man to, to many, many people. And, um, that just, it, it comes across in the film in a way that like, I just didn't expect it to, you know, like I, I didn't expect to be, I mean, I expected to be emotional watching it the first time, but I didn't expect it to be like, you know, put me back in, in this place of, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was, 25 years ago, I guess. So. Yeah, that's excellent. It's a great film. I'm so glad you guys both mentioned the, um, the ties to like the political stuff going on in, in formula one or like, I would think like if somebody, a new watcher to formula one gets into it to some people, when there's like too many rules, it's like when people talk about baseball, that they should put a timer that, that, you know, the challenges, like all the stuff they've instituted in, in recent time to like spice up the game. Like people want the politics and stuff to stay out of the game because it's a sport that, you know, it's part of the sport. Um, the crazy thing about formula one is part of the sport kind of is the politics. And we have a lot of that. Now we see protests and stuff over illegal parts and stuff all the, all the time. But this documentary shows heavily that there was politics back then. And there's kind of always been politics. And it's like, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm really glad you both mentioned that because it, it highlights, you know, there's things you have to do off the track to also win in formula one. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy like that. The other two things I wanted to point out from the film um, that really stick with me are about car control and Rohit, you've, you've talked about this, like not being the techie side of, of into formula one yet as of yet. But when you watch this documentary, it shows Ayrton from a very young age when he was in karting. And we're not thinking of like go-karts and stuff, you know, ripping around a dirt lot like we have here in America. We're talking like single stroke, uh, you know, souped up, you know, little moped engines that'll propel these carts to 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. And they are as much out of control as they are in control going that fast in these little carts, like an inch off the ground. And you can see him at a very young age, just skirting all over the track with such precision on a, uh, a little demon go-kart that's looks like it's about to fall apart. And, and that also leads into during the, during the film, they show, um, one of his most famous laps ever was qualifying in Monaco in the wet and it was pretty early technology at that time, but they have onboard footage and they show clips of that during the film um, to show how chaotic, because when you see it on TV, you just, it looks smooth. It looks like they're just driving around a racetrack. It doesn't look like it's that fast, but that lap specifically gives you such a sense of speed and how chaotic it is when they're driving these, you know, thousand horsepower beasts around the track inches from the wall. So those two things 
really stuck with me. And and for a new person watching Formula One and doesn't get the mechanics of it yet, those two pieces really highlight how skilled and how accurate these drivers are. No, that's it was startling because the first time you watch this movie and you are literally a fly in the seat of that car and you see the camera feed coming in and out and I'm like, man, what's going on? Are they literally going too fast? Like, is this disrupting the techiness of the technology at that moment? But it is exhilarating in the way that I don't think there's anything else that can capture that feeling of being a world-class race car driver. Similar, there's no feeling to be a world-class athlete of any sport, but just the fact that you have to have all these criteria to be this exceptional sports person, but then you're also putting a lot of your life on chance of something external to you. It's this piece of machinery. And to Nick's point as well, and to Todd's, for all the elegance and refinement this sport has, there is very much still some WWE in its pedigree because there's some questionable finishing. And this is probably the last thing I'll say on it. You get ample opportunity to view how petty, and that's the word I'll use to describe the FIA in this movie, how petty they are in terms of making sure that the proper candidate or the proper driver wins. And then you have Senna kind of doing something along the lines of Jesse Owens, where he just rises above it all and just make sure that there is no second place because he's so far ahead of everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's well said. Um, I, I'm I'm going to shift gears and, and with a bold statement, move to uh, go from what I would say is the best documentary about formula one. Ty, you want, you got. Yeah. Sorry. I just had to say one more thing about, uh, about Senna, uh, the, the lap that I just mentioned about, um, that just giving the feel of of driving a formula one car uh it's probably one of the most watched things on youtube we'll ever um so if you if you search yeah yep. okay you can link to it yeah if you search monaco senna qualifying in the wet yeah it's amazing yeah, that's a great point actually i will link in the description wherever you're listening to this to all the movies that we're going to touch on and then you know some of these clips because i think obviously you're going to go check out a trailer before you go watch it based on our feedback but um I, I wanted to kind of position this next one as like we're moving from like what I would consider the greatest documentary about Formula One, potentially of sports ever, in my opinion, to what is probably considered one of the best. F- like, you know, films about Formula One in Rush, which is done by Ron Howard. No, no, no. We're going to leave driven for uh you know, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for it just because I, you know, it's one of those things I got to watch with my my brothers and, and you know, but yeah, it's it, it's nowhere near the top of the list. And this is not a ranked order. I don't want to make anybody feel bad if we put their favorite movie towards the bottom. But Rush was actually, I think, interesting. And the reason why I wanted to tie it in here is because you also have this. This, you know, uh, you know, this like kind of battle between two legendary drivers in this, you know, brief moment in their careers that I think if you looked across formula one in its history, you can find that pretty frequently, but you might not find much like, you know, Senna and Prost and, you know, even Lewis and Max, right. You won't find the level of that competition, you know, at, at the very top, right. Where like either of these guys could have been, 
you know, champion in this moment or whatever, but also like to, to, you know, the point of the, let's say spiritual way that, that Senna drove and the calculated way that pros drove. That's also Nikki Lauda and um, James Hunt. And I think that, you know, rush is like, obviously, you know, big time film, Ron Howard directed Chris Hemsworth, Olivia Wilde. I forget who else is in there, but there's a couple other Daniel. Daniel Brule. Brule. So for yeah. our Marvel fans, that's essentially yep. Thor taking on Baron Zemo. Shout outs to Mike and Baron. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but this is, this is like 2013, a um, little bit older. Like the, the, you know, the film itself is, is not like up to today's standards, but like still totally entertaining, right? Like you could watch this and, and be, uh, you could get a little, little, uh, a little brief, dramatized history lesson but also like a very important one in my opinion because you know Nikki Lauda is arguably one of the most important people in Formula One over the past 30 years maybe maybe even more after he was driving with Lewis over the last you know however many years so um, what do you guys think of, of Rush? As Todd rushes to judgment I'll just kind of step in I will say this it does a great job coloring in the line. So if you're a newer person to Formula One, you have this idea of, okay, Nicky Lada, this clearly is somebody. I don't know what his significance is. Rush gives you that hyper-stylized version of his place in Formula One history. But then as you kind of get the initial vibe, especially to Nick's point around his mentorship of Lewis Hamilton, it kind of looks like a Jerry West type of relationship with Kobe Bryant, where it's a guy from a previous era who's extolling his wisdom to probably the next great one. But he does have a bit of prose to him because as that movie kind of lays this narrative of there's always going to be essentially two types of drivers. You have the pros or the Laudas, or you have the Hunt and the Senna's. And I think what was interesting about Max and Lewis's duel was the fact that they seem to be both in the genre of how Senna drove and how James Hunt drove, which is almost a carefree religious experience. This car is truly an extension of me and I embrace the purity of racing as opposed to the bureaucracy and the red tape that maybe somebody like Nicky Lauda in that movie or how Prost was in actuality. The one thing I will say about this is the comparison I would make is when there was a documentary about Magic and Bird and it was a similar dynamic in terms of you start off as rivals and then you turn into friends. But if you're looking at this from a factual perspective, a lot of it is very wrong. In fact, in the Wikipedia page, there is a historical accuracy section. So watch the movie and then read the historical accuracy section because it's probably a top 10 movie for me in the last decade. And it also makes you feel like you're living in that time of that 70s and 80s. So I think you basically get the snapshot of what life was like in the 70s. You get about a 10-year break, and then you pick up from the late 80s to the early 90s of Senna's run. Todd, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, it, Nick mentioned that he was he he mentioned that it was a kind of an older movie and not up to today's standards. But I'm so glad that it was made when it was before. CGI took over and before or and and I'm glad it was made by Ron Howard because he you know he wanted to live breathe sleep 
everything Formula One or classic Formula One, I should say, at that time. And he really nailed it. Um, I'm not a movie critic, but he 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 perfectly captured what everyone thinks about as the playboy jet setting rock star racing driver and the tactician ultra genius kind of villainous feel you get from Lauda at that time. And then it dives even deeper to show the, you know, probably huge insecurities that hunt had behind the scenes. Like he would throw up before every race and, and, you know, Lauda being like, I, I am a machine. I'm not going to let anything in. I can't have any attachments. And then it turns out to be again, dramatized through the movie, but you know, he lets, lets someone in and has that connection. So, but the, just everything about the movie is so good from the characters. I mean, Chris Hemsworth, he's attractive and, um, uh, God, I lost my train of thought there, but the movie's really damn good. Go watch it. <laughs> totally. I I think it's one of those movies that, you know, I I was I was trying to say what you said. You know, it, it really was like in the moment, like appropriate, right? And it's it sounds crazy to say that considering it's not even a full 10 years old yet. But like technology has drastically changed in the way that people film in 10 years. So it really does feel like it feels closer to, you know, let's say the, let's when is, when is uh hunt and loud is like the seventies, right? So this, the film feels closer to the seventies to me than it does 2022, even though like, you know, it's, it's, a massive production and, you know, beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's not like it feels old, but they just, they just did a really great job with it. I think this would be one of those things, you know, uh, along with the Senna documentary, I think the reason why these two are kind of up at the top for me is because I think you could watch these, not even as a formula one fan and still be completely entertained and walk away going, wow, that was great. I'm going to tell somebody about it. And that's probably the best piece of a claim you can give something. It's like, I'm not even interested in the sport, but they captivated me for the two and a half hours I committed to watching it. And yeah, I think that is also one of those modern telltale signs of how much I'm into a movie is, am I constantly checking my phone? Did not. And these movies also have great replay value because as you watch them again and again, you start picking up on things you may have overseen or you just chose not to pay a lot of attention to and with regards to both of these movies the mythology and the fact that for as jet setting and playboy as these guys are there's still a bundle of nerves because you have the hunt pre-game puke to kind of calm his nerves and then you have Ayrton Senna just who still is a man of faith a man of god and he at times has these moments where he's looking at this like what am i doing like this this could be it and he like all great drivers before and after him have made peace with that and just realizes this is what i've been put on this earth to do which is to drive a car really fast i'll have ricky bobby um yeah that's <laughs> i mean we'll have to get into it ricky bobby definitely deserves to be on a list of great racing movies but we're, we're trying to stick in fact, to formula there's one. a formula one component jean gerard 
We didn't even, I didn't even think about that. I mean, they invented freedom, the threesome, and these tiny little pancakes called crepes. <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, definitely you should watch. Uh, wait, what is it called now? Ricky, Ricky Bobby. Talladega Nights. The Ballad of Ricky yeah. Bobby. Um, should definitely watch Talladega Nights. It's a, it's a great movie, too. It's a nice palate cleanse yeah. after these two heavy, heavy movies. Yep, definitely. Um, I was going to kind of shift oh, like we've gotten into like the interesting aspects of filming these movies, which I don't think I was expecting to, to talk much about coming into recording. And as I was mentioning before we started recording, one of the movies that stood out to me in terms of the filming aspect of it um, is a, a film called Grand Prix, Grand Prix, however you want to say it, which is completely you know your grandparents racing movie um came out in 1966 but it is centered around the monaco grand prix uh james garner is you know the 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 star of the film and i think that because we're talking so much about the the style of the film and just how much you get to see like the athletic ability of people that drive these formula one cars through these films. I think it's a great film to, to, to check out because you don't really, you, you got to remember there weren't like a lot of uh, small and mobile cameras to film this stuff back in the day. And if you spent, even if you checked out a, a, a trailer on YouTube or, or wherever um, you get to see some shots of, Monaco in the sixties in these cars that, you know, like one, like the, the first thing I think about just with the vision of my, of this movie in my head is like how dangerous the cars were back then. Right. Cars nowadays have so much wrapped up in, in the safety of drivers. But back then these guys were like just risking their life on so many levels to Todd's point about the Senna lap at Monaco, you know, there's a, there's an interesting comparison there between those two films, because obviously, you know, for up until, you know, I mean, for me, it still is Monaco is like the pinnacle of racing, right? Like that's the one race other than like the 24 hour Le Mans, but like Monaco, as far as formula one is the one place I would love to go before I die. Kind of. That's how I feel about it. I feel like it's the most, it's, it's the showmanship of the sport in a sense. And I just don't think that even though there's lots of money in other places now, and there's lots of other crazy specific, you know, purpose-built tracks for these guys to race at watching anything at Monaco to me just instantly is like, there's a wow factor there that I can't really explain. But like Todd said about Senna in his lap, imagine, you know, you know, James Garner is not a race car driver. <laughs> like, he's he's in you know and i know they're not driving near as fast as formula one cars to film it but they film on the track they they race the track there's a lot of you know there's obviously some accidents that happen that that weren't intended to happen just in watching the the movie and i know it's an old one but i think uh you know i don't know if you guys have seen it but i definitely think it's something that should be on the list if you haven't if you haven't checked it out no i yeah to, go ahead todd no, to, to Nick's point, like 
talking about the technology when it was filmed um, and the mobile cameras and stuff. They also didn't have like car rigs, to, like, you know, a big crane arm on a Mercedes SUV like they film everything with now. A lot of times it was literally a dude with a camera hanging out the side of a car of a, like a normal road car in front of these cars, in, in front of these race cars going around a bend it probably as fast as they could go to get the realism. And it was just so dangerous. And we don't, we talked about this on the pre-show, but we don't know if anybody actually got hurt um, uh, filming that. But like the, this movie also gives really like the, the look and feel of being a race car driver on and off the track. And it is old and I don't know if it holds up today, um, but it is, just a, a really classic movie and probably one of the first movies they ever made a, you know, dramatized movie about formula one. So, but also to Nick's point, like talking about how dangerous the cars were back then, it was just like sheet metal and square tube, like, you know, yep. steel and as powerful as an uh, engine as you can make with pretty much no downforce and, cross cross ply tires which when you see them drive these cars in that movie or any classic cars like that they pretty much just slide around the corners it's not it's like controlled chaos no i mean the most telling thing about that era and like that previous i would say because senna makes a great point of this after senna's death there hadn't been a knock on wood a casualty since that movie had come out in 2010 but everything you hear about that era prior was they expected to lose at least one or two drivers a season because it was that risky and people were comfortable with that one thing i will also kind of follow up just to augment nick's point about monaco as nick was kind of waxing poetic about that spot it reminds me a lot of how basketball fans kind of hold madison square garden to this mecca status of you're not truly a basketball fan or a basketball player until you make that pilgrimage to mecca or madison square garden and either watch a game there or if you're a player have like that steph curry moment where you drop like nine threes in one of your first games before you become steph curry in all caps so so also found a fun fact on uh, Grand Prix, the movie we were just talking about. Of the 32 professional racing drivers who participated or were seen in the film, five died in racing accidents within two years of that film, and another five in the following ten years. Wow. That is nuts. They're not here for a long time. They're here for a good time. And that's what's scary. Yeah, definitely. Um... Quick, somebody come up with the Ricky Bobby thing so we don't end on a depressing <laughs> note. Yeah, I mean... Help me, Tom Cruise. Help me, help me Oprah. Help me, Buddha. <laughs> um, what, uh, what, what, how do you guys want to go about this? We're, we're at like 50 minutes now. I know it's getting kind of late, but do we keep going? Do we cut I it? I think we're good. Yeah. No, let's, we got to talk about the other movie yes, right. on this list. We have to talk right. about Driven. <laughs> Lead the way. Be the Burt Reynolds to our Sylvester Stallone. I'll keep it short and sweet. So this movie, Driven, I believe it came... When did it come out? It was... Yeah. So this is taking everything that is good and holy and British about Formula One and going Team America, F yeah, about it. So we have, like, the... It was... I think... 
Well, let's let's start with the, the cast of characters that are in this movie. Sylvester Stallone, aka is the, Joe the Hummer Tonto. Yeah, <laughs> it's Joe Tonto. Yep, and we have Kit Pardue, played by Jimmy Bly, who is also Sunshine in Remember the Titans. Yeah. So there's a weird reference. And then we have um, Till Schweiger, who is, if you couldn't tell, it's supposed to be Michael Schumacher, the angry German guy. Um, and then there's just a whole cast of other folks in there, including a guy who I'm pretty sure was supposed to be Juan Pablo Montoya, even though he, I don't think he came into F1 until 2005 or something no, like that. Juan Pablo Montoya was actually in the movie as himself. Oh, that's right. Wait, that's right. I was? forgot about no, you that. You must be talking about Memo Moreno. Oh, Memo Moreno. Yeah. There's... <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, this yes. movie was written by Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> and it shows with the iconic scene of him at a testing day, at a track, going around, stopping at corners and flicking quarters out of the car on the corners, and then showing how accurate he can be by picking up all of the quarters. Um, this movie's again, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure film. I don't think it's a great movie, but... If if you have two F1 cars driving down the streets of Chicago or New York or where the, wherever the hell they film that, ripping off manual, manhole covers as they pull yeah. by with the amazing amount of downforce, it's going to be a good time. So, again, watch the movie. Don't say we didn't warn you. Yeah, well said. I think that's the... Uh that's That's a great way to look at it, though, right? Because Formula One now does all these little, like stunts in the streets of new york city or across the bay bridge you know especially red bull you know red bull has done like dozens of those like let a, let an f1 car loose on the streets kind of controlled environment you know youtube videos right but you, you really like nailed it though it's it's basically like somebody from america who is not really like super maybe he's into formula one but it was like I'm going to just I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is probably just in the whole film is inspired by Sylvester Stallone's first invite to Formula One. Didn't get to know the sport much, just got to partake in all the like celebrity, you know, hoo-ha that, that happens around every race. And he came back to America and was like. Team America, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no amount of Leroy Jenkins enthusiasm to kind of get through this movie as i'm reading the wikipedia article they're just timely sentences according to the director rennie harlan the first cut was over four hours long and there's only 51 minutes of deleted footage so if we can get a snyderverse cut we can get the actual full driven cut jay leno appeared <laughs> jay leno appeared as a guest critic on that week's ebert and roper where he and richard roper described driven as the worst car movie ever made and Stallone himself has said, while this movie was autobiographical in a lot of ways, he considers this to be one of the biggest regrets he's ever had on film. But that being said, when we have a Patreon, we will be doing a Mystery, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 yes. running commentary of this movie. Yes. Because if for no other reason, this movie should bring people together like the way racing has for me and my two co-hosts. <laughs> totally. I don't, I don't actually... That's kind of harsh from Sylvester Stallone, to be honest, because it's by no means a good movie. But like Todd said, there's a, there's 
there's definitely an element of guilty pleasure there. Like I could watch what this have and have some good laughs. That's how you have to frame it. Like that's so this is the thing. We we always joke about this in our other podcast, Sneaker History, of giving away these billion dollar ideas. A lot of these movies should remarket how they come out. So this movie was marketed as a very dramatic days of thunder for a new era. This should have been Ricky Bobby before Ricky Bobby, because I think people's enjoyment of this would have been a lot more tangible had they marketed this as a comedy. It's Talladega Nights without the intentional jokes. The lack of self-awareness, which is the biggest joke of them all. Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're about at an hour. We've given you four solid movies to check out. Let's wrap. We'll get into some more of these in the future. I think I think there are plenty more to come. There's definitely some good documentaries. Uh, anything else you guys would like to add? The one thing I will say for any actual Formula One nerds like myself that are listening to this podcast and screaming at all of us. Why didn't you mention the documentary one life on the limit? It's because my other two co-hosts haven't seen it yet. It is the best formula one movie documentary, whatever you want to call it ever made. And it's also currently not available for streaming in the USA. So I'm going to have to uh, go pirate bay on that ish and uh, somehow get it to my co-hosts. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. Looking forward we like to, to break that. the law here at exhaust notes. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, new news. You can check out all the previous episodes at exhaustnotes.fm. You can also follow the social handles, exhaustnotes.fm on Twitter, Instagram, eventually other platforms as well. But more importantly, you should definitely follow Todd and Rowett. Guys, where can they find you? At T Yeezy on Instagram. At Roheasy on Twitter and at Roadm13 on Instagram. Yeah, that was not planned, by the way, no. for us to run. I know. I, I feel like I need to have an easy uh, variation Ang-Vizy for my. On OnlyFans. Angvizy. <laughs> yes, I like that. It's a very tasteful nude photo of him and just a tire covering his. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's for now, you can just follow me at Nick Engvall on all the platforms. But. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and listening to another episode's another episode of Exhaust Notes. We'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Peace. Vroom, 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 vroom.